0: Welcome to The Social Contract, a podcast created by author George S. Corey and the artist Cleo. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of The Social Contract. I'm your host, actor, writer, producer Tavia Gilbert. Okay. I am especially excited about this episode called Presidential Transitions because not only do I get to go one-on-one with the amazing Diane Grissel, a nationally renowned perception analyst and influencer, but also I get to welcome to the show someone who might just be my favorite guest ever, my father. But first, a quick recap about the social contract. This monthly podcast is for political junkies who might have forgotten just how fun, and often comical, politics and Washington's political figures can be. The podcast was created as a companion piece of sorts to George's book Presidential Conversations, which I'm excited to say is now available in paperback. You don't need to be familiar with the book to thoroughly enjoy The Social Contract. But in keeping with its spirit, this podcast features fictional, often satirical send-ups of the hot-button political issues of the day. This week, though, we're getting a little more serious than usual. June is the month when we honor our dads. And having just celebrated Father's Day, it's the perfect time for a family-themed episode. So we're delving into an issue that many of us grapple with, especially in these times— How to deal with friends and family members who hold differing, often conflicting political views. Not just once a year at the Thanksgiving table, but on a regular, often daily basis. At the heart of today's episode is George's deeply moving coda, written in the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election, about how he and his father could hold such divergent political views. George proudly voted for Hillary in 2016, and then Biden-Harris in 2020, and his father voted for the other guy. Now let's listen to George S. Corey's Presidential Transitions, narrated by Stephen DeRosa. And then we'll talk to Diane Grassell, and then my papa.
1: Let me get this out of the way, straight out of the gate. My father, is the man I most admire. In fact, I plan on dedicating my next book to him. Sorry, Dad. I guess the cat's out of the bag. My father was educated at the best schools and has been a top professional in the world of finance. He is also a lifelong what we call CNBC Republican. More importantly, he raised us kids with a sense of honor and dignity and instilled in us all a deep love of this country. With his generosity, humor, and kindness, he has led by example his entire life. A quick story to illustrate this point. On my 21st birthday, I wrecked my dad's brand new car. But he didn't scold me or even raise his voice. He was just happy that I walked away untouched. He put his hand on my shoulder and said, You're okay, so I'm okay. Don't worry, we'll work this out. In that moment, and in so many moments like that throughout my life, I have felt my father's hand on my shoulder, whether he was physically present or not. Then, Trump happened. It was bad enough that my father voted for Trump in 2016. But I and my siblings more or less wrote it off as an excusable lapse in judgment, a momentary one. But in the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election, He revealed that he had once again voted for Trump. He put his thoughts to us kids in a letter he titled, Why I Voted for Trump. The Democrats wanted us to vote based on Trump's personality. I didn't like Trump either, but there were more important issues for me, like law and order and the economy. There were fewer Trump yard signs or bumper stickers than anyone expected to see in Republican neighborhoods like ours because people were afraid of vandalism or even gunfire into their own homes. In Kenosha, the so-called peaceful protesters caused $50 million of property damage. In Minneapolis, it was estimated that 100 nights of peaceful protests caused $500 million of damage. This wasn't caused by Republicans. None of the Democrat mayors or governors in blue states and cities took decisive action against the rioters. Instead, they adopted catch-and-release programs for lifetime criminals and repeat offenders. This misguided practice, combined with years of fiscal mismanagement and high taxes, has caused a flood of citizens to flee to better run red states. The Democrats are also in favor of higher taxes and more regulations. Trump oversaw a booming economy before COVID-19 hit. An economy he energized with a historic tax cut and wholesale gutting of regulations that had been choking the economy. Democrats cannot expect to achieve this level of growth. And growth is the only way to get out of this pandemic recession. I have never been any of the things that Democrats in the media accuse people like me of being, like a racist or a sexist. What I have been, and what I remain, is a law and order, fiscally conservative, anti-regulation Republican, who has no time for political correctness, and who had no choice in 2020, but to vote Trump. And I'm not alone. This time, it was more difficult to reconcile my deep love for my father with my disdain for how he voted. It's something that I, and I suspect many other Americans, are still grappling with. No matter how hard I struggled, I could not find peace or solace. Then, one night, I found myself awoken from the sound of the television blaring in another room. I arose from my bed, as if in a trance, and followed the sound of a familiar fatherly voice booming through a microphone. I walked, practically floating, into the next room and realized the voice was emanating from President-elect Joe Biden. By now, I realized I was in a dream, but I was in no rush to awaken. Now I was experiencing the kind of surreal, out of body sensation that the writer in me had caused President Trump to experience. As he came face to face with other presidents of the United States, past and present in my book, Presidential Conversations. Biden was at a podium a bank of U.S. flags in the background, with Vice President-elect Kamala Harris at his side. Her arms were crossed, regal, like a Praetorian Guard, a knowing smile beaming across her face as she looked admiringly at the next commander-in-chief. Together, they projected strength, serenity, and confident determination. Biden spoke in his warm, quietly soulful voice. Since the election, I have been saying that we need to come together. I have been urging Republicans and Democrats, not only in Washington, but in our towns and communities, even in our own families, to reach out to each other. Remember, folks, we're all Americans, and we have always been able to move on as one American family from even the most vicious campaigns and most contentious elections. Look, I've been in politics for most of my life. I know that people are passionate on both sides. But that's part of what makes us great. And I know that presidential transitions, just like life transitions, can be rough. Sometimes they even hurt. But I call those growing pains. I hear it when people ask me, Joe, how are you going to deal with the 74 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump? Biden looked down and smiled to himself. Well, folks, what if we started thinking about it as healing rather than dealing? And what if we did more than just think about it? He then extended an open palm. Healing is going to require action. You know, I get a lot of strength from my faith. Ecclesiastes tells us, He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. So we've got to do the work, folks, for the soul of the nation, for the good of the nation. Where do we begin? Well, we begin to heal our divided country the same way we heal our fractured families. Biden then looked directly into the camera, and it felt like he was looking at me. We start with love and forgiveness, and knowing that in a family, love means forgiveness. We start with a belief in our better angels as Americans, and a recognition of this great nation's capability for progress and even redemption. We're facing tough times, folks. Joblessness, our climate crisis, and of course, this deadly pandemic. But love will push us forward. Love will embolden us to forgive. It's love that will bind our wounds. And we've gotta start by reaching out to the people we love. Then hopefully, by reaching out across the aisle here in Washington for the benefit of the American people, all the American people. Biden then reached for Harris's hand. And as they raised them up together, he proclaimed, we are going to work for all Americans, the ones who voted for us and the ones who didn't. And we will lead this country together under one banner. Our hearts are full with an abiding love for this country. Our fists are clenched in determination. And our heads are held high with pride. When I woke up, it was morning. The sun reflected magnificently on the freshly fallen snow. It was suddenly so bright, I had to squint. And on this morning, this new day in America, I resolved to call my dad for the first time in many weeks and ask how he's doing.
0: Oh, my heart is heavy and full. George's writing is just so honest and raw. I appreciate that. And yet, in typical George S. Corey fashion, he somehow finds the bright spot. And we are left like he is at the end of the piece, with optimism and hope. What a beautiful place to land. Listening to Stephen narrate this story, one cannot help but think of their own father, if they are lucky enough to have their father with them still. I am one such very lucky girl. And now I'd like to introduce you to my dad, Terry Gilbert. My father is a lifelong educator. He's been a teacher in public schools, he represented teachers in North Dakota and in Idaho through the National Education Association Teachers Union, and I'm proud to say he's thrown his hat into the political ring and is currently running for Idaho State Superintendent of Public Instruction. There's no one I know who believes more deeply in the social contract than George S. Corey and my father, so I'm proud to welcome him to the podcast today. Papa! Yes. Welcome to The Social Contract. Thank you. First of all, how does it feel to be interviewed by your daughter on a podcast? Strange. (laughs) Well, knowing you and loving and respecting you as deeply as I do, I know that education and reading are especially important to you. You and Mom made those virtues a fundamental part of my own upbringing, and you have inspired many young people throughout your life and your career. In the last episode of this podcast, we previewed a young reader's edition of the forthcoming book, Presidential Conversations for Kids, which is going to be published in the fall. And that is about presidential history and the social contract. And so my question for you is, as a parent and as an educator, how in an age of technology and gadgets... Do you think we can instill in children a love of reading? And what advice do you have for parents or teachers or anyone who loves children to ensure that a love of reading is a part of their upbringing and their futures?
2: I believe parents themselves should read to children.
0: Do you think that it is important to not only read to children but for children to see their parents modeling reading behaviors.
2: Absolutely. Adults are models, be it an adult in a classroom or an adult at home. Adults are models and they portray their value system to their children constantly.
0: Hmm, that's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about that in that way, but of course, I know how aligned you are with the theme of our podcast, which is the social contract, America's social contract, what does that mean to you?
2: The idealism of this country, that's a social contract. That is an agreement by the citizens that they will live by certain values. Now we're seeing those values frayed and we're seeing our country in dire trouble. I believe in those values, the idealistic values of our country. I realize that we have not lived up to them at all times. And there are horrendous stories that one could tell and one can learn. And I think one should know those stories. I know those stories, and I retained a love for the ideals of our democracy, not necessarily the action every time of our democracy.
0: What are the ideals?
2: In a democracy, a healthy democracy, we hold a respect for each other because we are fellow citizens. We are joined together by the ideal of citizenship. We should resist the urge to identify only with our tribe. Our cultural tribes are frequently at war, especially if those tribes are not joined by the idea and ideal of democracy. We're trying to foster and retain a democracy. There's a real question about whether we will be able to do that in the long run.
0: I hope so. You are running for Idaho State Superintendent of Public Instruction. I am incredibly proud of you and so humbled by your example. I would love for you to share with our listeners why you're running for this office and what issues you believe are most worth fighting for.
2: I am living in a tribal state. Mm. The tribe is red. Mm. I'm not part of that tribe. So I did not run with the idea, well, I will win. I ran with the idea that I will have a voice. Otherwise, there was no Democrat who was going to run for Idaho superintendent of public instruction. I've been in education all of my adult life, and I feel it deeply in my heart. So as flawed a candidate as I am, I wanted to stand in front of the public and articulate my deep feelings about democracy. I believe in public education. We just had a Supreme Court ruling out of Maine that allows the general public to support religious schools. So that is a deterioration of the concept of the separation of church and state. That is more than worrisome. We have examples throughout the world of powerful religious forces using their power to convert those who really don't want to be converted. We have escaped that. I don't think we're going to escape it any longer.
0: You're supposed to inspire us at the end. <laughs> Great.
2: <laughs> well, I'm our public education system has been an inspiration to this country. It is the glue that holds us together. I taught in a small school, the village of Marsing, Idaho. It was the hub of the community. The community came to the basketball games to watch the Marsing Huskies win or lose. It pulled the community together. And when I stood in my classroom to greet my high school seniors, American government class, and my junior high English students, I didn't greet them as, well, hello, Republican Joel. Hello, Democrat Janelle. I said, hello, students, let's learn together. I want that environment to continue in our country. So, in my many years in education, both teaching and being president of the Idaho Education Association, and working with teachers in North Dakota, the North Dakota Education and the Idaho Education Association, I was constantly inspired by how creative and dedicated my fellow teachers were, and that continues to inspire me.
0: Well, you inspire me, and you always have, and I feel very, very grateful because you gave me many gifts, including a love of public education, a love of voting, a love of public libraries, a love of unions, and a love of a Christianity that I think is a true servant-focused love for humankind and for equality and justice. So I'm grateful for that.
2: Thank you. I I, I appreciate that affirmation. I am inspired by you. I'm inspired by my son. I'm inspired by my wife. They are, you know, I'm deeply in love with all of them and their talents. They're awesome people and they make me humble.
0: Well, Likewise. Thank you, Papa. You're welcome. <laughs> my Papa, everyone. We'll check back with him in November for a post-electoral update. In the meantime, anyone who wants to learn more about his campaign can follow him at Gilbert for Idahoschools.com. That's Gilbert the number four Idahoschools.com. Now it's my pleasure to welcome Diane Grassell to this edition of the Social Contract. Diane is a counselor, influencer, and perception analyst, who is also known to millions as At Silver Disobedience. She is the best-selling author of The Silver Disobedience Playbook, 365 inspirations for living and loving agelessly, and an icon model with Wilhelmina New York, who has appeared in major brand campaigns all around the world. Diane is the embodiment of what it means to live your best life, which is why we are thrilled to have her on the show. Diane, welcome to The Social Contract. It's so nice to have you here and such a pleasure to get to speak with you. I think you know that this episode is special. This is a Father's Day themed episode, which is a celebratory holiday for many of us, but not for all of us. For those of us who have lost their fathers or never knew them, never had their fathers, or perhaps never have had or don't currently have a really great relationship with them, I'd love to hear from you what some coping strategies are. And I know that what you share with us about Father's Day, of course, could be applied to any sort of holiday. Can you share how this can be a a softer holiday for some who have had a harder time with this day in the past?
3: Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me here. First, I'd like to say that when people struggle with parenting issues, I often try to remind them, to some degree, it's the sperm lottery. We don't <laughs> yeah. choose who our parents are going to be. And some of us are extremely fortunate, and some of us feel not so fortunate, and some have lost parents, some have gotten new ones through mm. second marriages by one parent or another. And these relationships are so intimate to us, to our core essence because we relate to ourselves and learn so much from those parental figures Mm. one way or another. But Mm -hmm. we can find parenting people within our lives. Whether our parents Mm. are still alive, we can embrace them. We can take that risk and reintroduce ourselves to them as who we are today and take that chance. And Mm. often people find they're very welcomed. Or we can reach out to people who have passed. And my father mm. and mother are both dead. I talked to them probably more than I did when they were alive. So that exists wow. in your heart. And then there are the people we can make our parents, whether it's friends or mentors, that we can reach out to and have those intimate relationships with.
0: Mm, that's great. I really like that you're giving so much agency and saying that we have a lot of choices. I think some people feel stuck without choice and you're reminding us we always have a choice. That is so true. I'm a big (laughs) believer of
3: choice and recognizing we are the boss of our lives and we get to make these choices.
0: Yeah, full stop. Well, I have to ask you, in these very divisive and politically painful times, what's your advice as a therapist for dealing with friends, especially with family members, who might hold completely different viewpoints, politically speaking, than our own? I think it's a really pertinent question when one enjoys a close relationship like George and his dad, and they're completely in sync except for that political realm. How do you navigate that?
3: Well, first of all, I think really the most important thing to remember, Tavia, is we do not have to convince everyone mm. about what we believe. There's an expression that the extremes inform the middle. Mm. And if you think about extremes in either direction, they are often extreme. And most people are in the middle. And that's where connection is found. You know, if you think about a pendulum, it comes back mostly to the middle. Every time it has to hit the middle. So I think when we're around other people, if we could just accept, we don't have to convince them about what we believe, but maybe we could use that expression. We have two ears and one mouth. So just listen. (laughs) Connection happens when someone else feels like they're being listened to. And if we just say, you know what, I'm going to assume the therapist role or the sacriotic mode, and I'm going to just try to keep this person talking and ask them, why do they believe that? What is that based on? Where did that come from?
0: Mm. One,
3: we're going to walk away smarter. Two, we're not going to start a fight. And three, we might have a relationship breakthrough.
0: Hmm. But if we didn't fight, what would we do with all that time?
3: We might have a discussion where we learn. (laughs) We might be learning because all that time can be spent asking questions. And nothing makes someone else (laughs) feel more important. I'm feeling really important right now. You're asking me questions. Of
0: course. Ask someone questions.
3: Ask their opinion. Ask their thoughts. Ask them their why. Mm -hmm. And there's a Mm -hmm. whole new set of connection at a human level that happens. Yeah. And it may also trigger the doubt in someone that they have. You know, maybe they don't 100% believe what they're saying. Right. But you again don't have to teach them what you think.
0: Right. It used to be in society, we didn't discuss three topics at the dinner table. We didn't talk about religion. We didn't talk about sex. And we didn't talk about politics. But politics are so pervasive. How can we not talk about politics? How can we steer clear of that? Or should we? Well, whether it's sex, religion, or politics, I
3: never discourage talking about them. But my opinion to someone else, I think it was George Carlin who joked, it's a very funny joke, you know, don't argue with someone who's stupid. They'll win and bring you down to their level every time. Now, I am certainly not implying that someone with a different opinion is stupid. But I think what I take away from that quote is don't argue, ask, listen. When you get someone else speaking, you're learning and they're learning too. As people start to speak about what they think so strongly about, and you just ask gentle questions, it's the best way to get to a new level of understanding. If you just say, Mm. why do you believe that? If you took the emotion out of it, would you still feel that way? Is it personal Mm -hmm. to you? Is it a world factor that you think needs to be considered? There's a zillion questions if you're really listening. And if they ramble and don't give you space for a question, you
0: learned a lesson in patience. Also very valuable. (laughs) Invaluable. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested by your work as Silver Disobedience. And I love that name. I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners who are not familiar with it what Silver Disobedience is all about and tell us what the impetus for this incredible creation of yours was. What was there? Did you have an aha moment that sparked Silver Disobedience? Well,
3: thank you. Silver Disobedience is one of the largest discussions online and it reaches about 9 million people a month engage one way or another wow. with the content. And what it is is a discussion about ourselves it's not about someone else. It's about becoming our best self. Mm-hmm. If we focus on ourselves and how difficult it is to change ourselves, to improve ourselves, to manage our things thoughts, to manage our emotions. If we really focus on thinking about that, we're a lot less critical of other people because we know how hard Mm. it is to do those things. That is the essence of silver disobedience. It's the idea of living and loving agelessly. It's open to anyone at any age. The majority of the audience is in their 40s and up, but I have... 13-year-olds. I have teachers who read my blog every day and share it with their kindergartners as a discussion, as well as people what? who use it for high school students for writing prompts. So it's open to everyone. The funny thing is it started because at 57, I'm 62 now, I got invited to be a model with Wilhelmina, which was a very unexpected surprise because I've owned a public relations firm and specialized in crisis management for 27 years.
0: What a transition. Yeah,
3: they said I had to start an Instagram page and post pictures, I thought, oh my gosh, all my clients are going to think she's having a midlife crisis. She's suddenly posting pictures of herself every day. I was mortified. So I said, well, if this is the requirement and I did want to find out I love experiences. I walk through every door, at least for a while, and stay at the party until I decide I'm ready for a next adventure. I posted the pictures, but decided I would write about what was important to me, which is collective consciousness and how we all feel the same if we get down to the root emotions. We might feel it at different mm. times, but we all want to be loved. We all know what to hate feels like. We all need, know what fear feels like, worry, concern. So if we can get to the root of our humanity, we can really connect. So we don't talk about politics at all on my page. We talk about being our best selves and the community likes it that way.
0: Yeah, that's great. I have one more question for you. This podcast is obviously focused on the social contract, which is really about society and the collective good. But I think in this day and age, after what feels like a particularly brutal couple of years where we've faced a pandemic and so much more, self-care is so important. I feel like in order to help other people out, you really have to be coming from a place of wellness and strength and grounding yourself. So what are some practical ways that our listeners can approach self-care, especially if self-care is new to them, even in these intensively stressful times? Any advice for us? Yeah,
3: that's a really good question, and I'd like to start with saying that if you find you're getting all your antioxidants from alcohol, chocolate, and coffee, you need a health inventory because, well, those things <laughs> may be wonderful, they are not the source of all the nutritional value we need. Okay, I need to write this down. (laughs) (laughs) So I really encourage people, number one, get up and drink two to four glasses minimum of good sized glasses of water every day before you put anything else in your body. Because your body has gotten dehydrated overnight, you need to keep your body hydrated and it really dehydrates overnight. So start your day with two to four glasses of water. Get up and move throughout the day. We are all sitting hunched over computers which is terrible for our necks, terrible for our spines, terrible for our mental well-being to be in that closed up position. Mm. It's just not healthy. So you've got to get up every couple of hours, move, stretch, take a walk, change the focus, change where you're looking, look someplace different. So those would be my two big ones. Next would be fruits and vegetables, things that are good for us, getting up and moving. I'm a big believer of do what you don't want to do first. If you want to have dessert, okay, eat your salad and vegetables first. Then go ahead and have dessert if that's what you want to do. But make sure you put something else really healthy in first. If you want to binge watch on some television channel, great. Just go exercise for an hour first. Do something that you maybe don't want to do first. Mm.
0: That's a great idea. Well, I really appreciate your time. I want to learn more about Silver Disobedience myself, and I want our listeners to learn more about Silver Disobedience. So I invite everyone to check out the website, which is an awesome URL, silverdisobedience.rocks, says it all right there, and to find you at Silver Disobedience on Facebook and Instagram. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being part of this episode. Thank you so
3: much for having me, Tavia.
0: As always, I'd like to conclude the podcast with a quote. This one is taken from former President Barack Obama. I'm inspired by the love people have for their children. And I'm inspired by my own children, how full they make my heart. They make me want to work to make the world a little bit better. And they make me want to be a better man. Those words are from President Obama's book, The Audacity of Hope, And what is hope these days if not audacious? Like me, you're probably already looking forward to our next episode, World War T, which is our summer movie blockbuster of an episode. Think Contagion meets Independence Day. So make sure to have your popcorn and milk duds at the ready when that episode comes out on July 25th. Remember, we always release on the last Monday of the month. I want to thank our very special guest, Diane Grussell, the amazing Stephen DeRosa, my equally amazing father, Terry Gilbert, and of course, the creators of The Social Contract, George S. Corey and Cleo. If you enjoyed this podcast, it's a safe bet you'll really enjoy George's book, Presidential Conversations, now in paperback. Learn more about George S. Corey at georgescorey.com and about Cleo at theartistcleo.com. We'll put those links in the show notes, as well as some very, very special heart art by Cleo. Be sure to check it out. Most of all, as always, I want to thank you, our listeners. We're thrilled to have you with us. We welcome you to follow the Social Contract Podcast, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We hope this will become one of them. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love it if you'd give us a five-star rating and even drop a short review. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at MyTSCPodcast. This has been the Social Contract Podcast, created by George S. Corey and Cleo. Produced and hosted by Tavia Gilbert. Music courtesy of Listen Audio. Mix and Master by Kayla Elrod. This has been a podcast from Listen Audio in association with TalkBox Productions.